one step in this long progress. It's been a team effort by us all the way. We're but part of the whole team that's worked so hard. The shuttle era will come to an end. But they won't stop inspiring, and they won't stop being a part of the fabric of America. We choose to go to the moon. Everybody to another episode of the Talking Space Podcast. This is Talking Space episode 343 for the week of Monday, October 31st, 2011. <laughs> that would mean that it is Halloween here in the United States. And joining me tonight are our regular cast of ghouls, which include Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene. Hey, good evening, Sawyer from cold and scary New Jersey. How you doing, sir? I'm good, thanks. That was quite spooky, the snow that you got there, huh? Yeah, it was. Well, power is, is just about out of my home, and which is which is why I'm I'm sort of uh, held up in a hotel room right now with you guys. So, uh, uh, again, my, my my apologies, but it's not exactly what we expected. But I'm good. I'm just happy to be here tonight. Welcome as well, Mark Ratterman. You never know who you're going to find here. That's for sure. Maybe it's a ghost or a goblin or somebody else. And welcome as well, Gina Herlihy. I think I'm truly scared now after that intro. (laughs) (laughs) With my puns and jokes, you should always be scared. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, let's get into business today, and let's begin with an announcement that was made at 10 a.m. this morning on October 31st, 2011, at the Kennedy Space Center. And that was that Boeing will be building their CST-100, their spacecraft, at the Kennedy Space Center in Orbiter Processing Facility 3, which was home to one of the space shuttles. That was a pretty big announcement this morning, right? Yeah, sure was, Sawyer. Uh, the announcement came from a gentleman by the name of uh, John Mulholland, who is the uh, Vice President Program Manager of the Commercial Programs for uh, Boeing Space Exploration uh, Department here. Uh, basically saying that uh, it could mean a good uh, 550 uh, local jobs for the for the space coast so it's a uh, uh, really really good uh, really really good news news for uh, for everybody over there I think this is really going to be a, a boon for uh, for that particular area yeah this reminds me back a few months ago I was talking to one of the folks at the Cape Kennedy at the press site Howard Butel and was asking him just general questions about what's ahead. And he said that NASA was looking to come up with agreements for anybody that wanted to do business with them for places like the OPFs, uh, the VAB, the uh, facility where they refurbished the solid rocket boosters or they they, uh, reassembled them and prepared them for launch when they came in, uh, the shuttle landing facility, you know, basically anything that any asset that that they had there at the Cape is something that they were looking to find customers for, and uh, put a uh, put a check in the box for for scoring points on this one. 
again, CST-100 is uh, Boeing's entry in, into the, uh, the commercial crew uh, program, and it's a rather impressive vehicle. Uh, I, Mark, you alluded to, uh, to this earlier. Um, we were down over, over at Kennedy Space Center. They had a very good demonstration, of literally a cutaway of what the vehicle was going to look like on the inside, and it uh, was really, really impressive. So, uh, again, I'm wishing, wishing Boeing all the best with this one. And one more, it looks like it's, it's going to go ahead and get uh, uh, 550 good uh, technical uh, jobs into the area. And uh, one, of the, one of the bonuses that... Uh, Frank DiBello, who is uh, president of Space Florida, alluded to basically saying the positions, this positions uh, Florida for a future growth and leadership, uh, uh, for a future leadership role within NASA and uh, the next generation of space exploration initiatives. So again, this this really really sets things up for uh, for the future, and and we'll just be watching. They also mentioned how it would be done in Orbiter Processing Facility Three where the amazing space shuttle program occurred. And they said that after a while, it was just getting expensive and old. And so now they're using such a historic facility to bring in a new generation of vehicles, which I thought was pretty cool. And uh, it's a 15-year use permit. So this is obviously not a uh, flash in the pan, you know, one time just here, here today, gone tomorrow, but something that Boeing is planning on a presence there for time to come. All right, so we'll get back to commercial space a little bit later on the show. But for right now, let's go towards governmental space, and specifically the Soyuz, which had a failure of the Progress 44 launch recently. Their latest attempt to relaunch the Soyuz spacecraft was to launch Progress 45, and that successfully lifted off on Sunday, October 30th, at 6.11 a.m. Eastern Time from the Baikonur Cosmodrome in Kazakhstan. This is not only important for the fact that it will supply the crew of the International Space Station currently, but this also means that they will go ahead with a manned Soyuz launch in November, right? Yeah, it looks that way. To, to just kind of rewind things a little bit for those of you listening who may not know what the Progress vehicles are, these guys are essentially little supply ships that go up to the uh, to the International Space Station. They carry food supplies and experiment packages and things like that up to the ISS uh, for the astronauts to go ahead and use. Now, uh, these are really, really critical you know, resupply uh, missions, obviously, to the International Space Station. Uh, the last one, as Sawyer, you kind of alluded to, uh, Progress 44, uh, met uh, a not-so-good fate, which uh, was not really what anybody really, really wanted, wanted to see, uh, for the simple reason the booster uh, that uh, the Progress vehicles use is the same vehicle that lost the Soyuz spacecraft. Uh, which is which is uh, the Russian piloted spacecraft. So uh, obviously we've got a problem. There was a problem there. We had to go ahead and take a look at it. There was something going on with uh, the third stage, I believe, of the pro- of the uh, of the Soyuz booster. Uh, that problem has since been been uh, rectified, and uh, the proof here was the successful launch of Progress 45 uh, on Sunday. Uh, and again, this paves the way. Um, or, as Sawyer, you alluded to, uh, for uh, 
piloted launches to resume to the International Space Station, which again we thought that possibly we'd have to go ahead and go into a an un, an unpiloted posture on board board the ISS, and uh, that is uh, you know that would have been a, a bad deal. Um, uh, but uh, it looks like that's not going to happen now, and uh, I believe uh, Dan Burbank and his crew are, are set to, to launch, correct, sir? Exactly. Their current launch date is scheduled for November 14th. It seemed like there would be a flight review of this launch where they will determine from that the final uh, final approval for a crew launch. So it's not there yet, and that problem was attributed to human error. and. They, from what I read on nasaspaceflight.com, they have cited uh, from the Russian media problems of the aging workforce, poor salaries, lack of investment for the decline in quality. And I think, uh, Mark, I think um, MSNBC's uh, Jim Oberg brought up a lot of this stuff too at one point, and uh, I don't know how it was really, really addressed by by NASA themselves, but. Uh, it's going to be very, very interesting to see, you know, long term what happens with this. Problem is, right now they are the linchpin of, <laughs> of piloted operations, and this is just uh, another another uh, way of saying, look, you know, we've really got to stop total dependence on on one source to get cargo and crew to uh, to a facility that we help build, and uh, it just it it it's almost and again this is just my opinion here it's almost criminal to the to the effect that we still do not have access ourselves to something we we really help build okay but gene what's the solution right now what's the alternative well again it's our own short-sightedness and well, uh, right but you know to to make it that statement i mean you know, what else is there? We don't have commercial space online. Shuttle stop flying. We don't have another alternative yet. We know all that. But Soyuz is the only game in town. So sort of all hands on deck to make sure those Russians keep those rockets flying in top, tip-top shape. Yeah, I agree. But by the same token, too, we got to go ahead and accelerate our own, uh, our own efforts to go ahead and, and augment what they're doing. Uh, that's that's all I'm trying to say. I just I just think that uh, having once again all our eggs in just one basket is kind of ridiculous. And we've again I agree with you, Gina. We've 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 painted our, ourselves into into this corner, and uh, we've got to get ourselves out of it. But I think what's happened with the Soyuz here is sort of under under is sort of underlines that we really do need to accelerate. This uh, this whole thing, uh, and Lori Garver sort of said something to the effect that, hey, you can pay NASA now for you know or, or you know fund NASA now for a commercial crew, or you can pay the Russians later. Uh, it's your choice, and and I think that's that's essentially what I'm trying to say. So we can continue to fund the Russians and fund that particular program, or we can accelerate our own program. And I think we should start thinking about doing that. Still think the Russians should charge a hundred million dollars a uh, seat for astronauts to fly up to the ISS. Wow, it's a hundred million now. No, it's just what I think they ought to make it. That'll <laughs> that'll speed up the process you're talking about. Yeah, and you know, right now it's what it, what guys check me. It's about in the range of about sixty million dollars now. I think it's headed seat. there. I think it's still short of that. 
Okay. I think the newest um, agreement would be sixty-three million. Yeah, I knew I knew it was in the neighborhood of that, but um, it, it's just we really, really have to <laughs> we really have to go ahead and get get our own program going. Whether whether it's commercial, whether it's it's the Orion, but we really got to go ahead and get get that moving. It's been seen apparently to the tune of seventeen thousand four hundred and fifty-nine views at this point, but a picture of the Progress cargo ship that undocked on Saturday which would have been uh, Saturday the 29th, the cargo ship undocked and re-entered, and there was a photo taken of it uh, burning up in the upper, in the Earth's atmosphere by Mike Fossum on Twitter. It's at Astro Aggie, and uh, I hadn't seen that picture until just this evening, so I I think it's always quite dramatic to see what actually happens uh, to things that are intended to go that route. And I'm looking at it right now, Mark. That is just a cool picture. It's a, essentially a picture of Progress 43 going out in a blaze of glory, and it's and it's really, really neat. It's very high up there in terms of coolness, along with the STS-135 re-entry shot from the International Space Station. But it's pretty cool, because you can kind of see the individual pieces burning up, like the solar panels, and it's really neat. The link to that will be in the show notes. Yeah, please, because it's 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 definitely worth a look. I kind of wish kind of wish they had a good shot of this when uh, Rosat came in last week. Oh, they had the advantage of knowing when this one was coming in too, and exactly where. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. they have to. <laughs> All right, so again, Progress Forty Three was jettisoned, and Progress Forty Five is now scheduled to dock to the International Space Station on November second. Okay, so continuing along, we go from the Russians launching a spacecraft to the Chinese. Recently, the Chinese launched their Tianyang-1 into space, which is going to be their space lab. And they recently sent a spacecraft to dock with it. And that was the Shenzhou-8, which launched at about 6 a.m. Chinese time, which is about 6 p.m. Eastern time. And that launched on November 1st, Chinese time, October 31st, Eastern time. So this could mean something pretty big here, right? Yeah, it's big for them. Uh, it's it's a good test to see if they could go ahead and rendezvous. Doc Shenzhou 8, I believe, is unpiloted. Uh, and it's it's a test to see if they could actually dock with, uh, with the infamous Heavenly Palace there, as it's called. And... Uh, uh, this this is stuff that we kind of do with our eyes closed at this point. I mean, Progress 45 is going to do that with the ISS and it has been doing that with Mir and so on. Uh, but this is a big step for them. And this kind of paves the way for uh, Shiansu 9, which I believe is going to be going to be piloted. And I believe also it is going to carry the first uh, female Takanon on board. So uh, it'll be kind of kind of neat to go ahead and and uh, see the Chinese go ahead and break the gender barrier too on, on this one. Although when that was first announced, uh, it it kind of caused a little bit of a storm on on Twitter when I fired it off because just the way the the Chinese had put it, uh, it didn't translate well <laughs> into English as far as uh, the training. Uh, was concerned. It almost sound, made it sound like that the female astronauts would be subserv- subservient to the male astronauts, which which I got some you know flack over, and I'm like, don't shoot the messenger guy. But um, 
uh, I said, in in all indifference to the Chinese, I, I felt it was sort of it might have gotten lost in translation because I've seen some very interesting translation attempts to to English and and uh, uh, that that might have been the, that might have been the case. So uh, I was willing to cut the authors author some slack on that one. But again, this is this is a big deal for China uh, and their program. You know, hope it all works out for them. And uh, uh, but again, this is stuff that we've been doing that the, that the Americans have been doing, and, and and the Russians have been doing with their eyes closed now for some time. Right. But basically, what the government has released, the Chinese government so far, is that they plan to have two manned missions to it next year. One of those two will include the first female. Takanaut, which is their astronaut. Okay, I thought I thought it was nine and not ten. Okay, I I, I stand corrected. It's one of the next two, either nine or ten, will have a female astronaut on board. They didn't specify which yet. Yeah, it's it, you never know with the Chinese program. It's because it's it is military and thrust, and uh, they kind of are are kind of you know close to the vest with some of their plans. So. It's not a civilian agency the way uh, the way our program is. I mean, the news reached us here of the launch in the United States. I think it was a little over twelve hours before the launch actually occurred. Yeah, but again, this is t- sort of taking a book out, taking a page out of the old Soviet Union book. That's the way uh, they used to operate. They wouldn't really announce a launch until pretty much after the mission had been well underway. But, I mean, this could be big because only three nations have ever launched their own human into space. The United States, the Soviet Union slash Russia, and China joined in 2003. So if they're doing regular launches to a space station, this could be big. Yeah, you know, again, but it's kind of – it's big for them. And and I guess it is big for 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 the human race here too because now there's a there's a third uh, there's a third uh, uh, kid on the in the neighborhood so to speak. Well, we'll see if that actually successfully docks and if any Tachonauts make their way to it. Yeah, but uh, Sawyer again, there's there's another little blip as far as China is concerned, isn't there? Yes, and I believe it involves a United States Landsat satellite. Yeah, it's, it looks like it wasn't just Landsat 7. It was actually another another NASA satellite here, too. Uh, believe it believe it was the uh, Earth observation uh, satellite called Terra. Um, and I'm looking at a uh, Space News article dated October 28th. Uh, quote, uh, NASA experienced two suspicious events, as they're calling it, with the Terra spacecraft. Um, and uh, they're all, they also uh, indicated that uh, the U.S. Geological Survey's Landsat 7 also experienced two um, what they're calling radio frequency events during the fall of 2007 and the summer of 2008. Uh, Terra itself uh, experienced um, what they're calling a suspicious event during uh, 2008 as well, the summer and and fall of that that time. Uh, no no uh, instructions were relayed to the satellite, but they, I'm guessing they easily could have uh, done that if they wanted to. 
Um, essentially, the, the U.S. They, NASA turned everything over to the U.S. Air Force. They launched an investigation, and it looks like after you know all the parsing is done, with all the data and where where all this came from, as far as the IP addresses are concerned. Um, United States Air Force is pointing the ugly light at, once again, our Chinese brethren. I know, of course, the Chinese are emphatically saying that this is not something we did. Uh, but, you know, when you've got the, the IP addresses, I mean, IP addresses I know could be spoofed and all this, but... Uh, you know, I know a lot of people are saying we should cooperate with China. I know a lot of people are saying that we should, um, you know, actually bring China on board, possibly into on board the ISS, because again, as we, we mentioned here earlier, um, we do not have a way of getting to our own space station right now. And right now, the only two, um, only two craft that are operating, at least. Are the uh, are the Shenzhou and uh, and the Soyuz spacecraft, and they are loosely related to each other. You know, okay, fine. We want to bring China on board, but then you have stuff like this. So, you know, you want to have a partner you can trust. And if uh, I mean, I can almost understand it if these were military satellites. I'm sure we're doing it to Chinese military satellites as well. Uh, we just don't hear about it. But when you talk about hacking into, you know, civilian satellites and have them, you know, possibly uh, be set up to become zombie sats, if you will, you know, no pun intended since this is Halloween, um, you know, do we really want to go ahead and bring a partner on board that's going to basically, you know, monkey around with our equipment? I, 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 would, I would have my trepidations. I notice in a article that I stumbled across from netsecurity.org that the satellites were controlled by a satellite station in Norway. And they mentioned the possibility of the Internet that that station uses to transfer and access files may have been the method of uh, access for the hackers to get into the system. I, I say that seriously because uh, working for the FAA, we've got some very strict controls and limits on what equipment is connected to any kind of network. And by and large, uh, our, our systems are either isolated in a, uh, I guess you call it an internal network, and I don't know the network topology that well, and it's probably better that I don't, but uh, <laughs> you keep stuff isolated. I mean, there's many, 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 and probably the majority of things that, that I have some basic knowledge of that uh, it doesn't matter if the Internet's even there, and, uh, and we're happy and, and going to do our job. So the Internet can be a double-edged sword. It can give you convenience for a lot of capabilities of transferring data, but at the same time, if you don't have some extremely tight security, uh, you can have problems. Hey, Gina, now we know exactly why uh, Adama did not allow any networked uh, stuff on board Galactica. Oh, I know it. <laughs> Keep it local. Keep it safe. Exactly. Okay, so whenever you launch your own satellites, people, keep an eye out on them. Continuing along, let's move on to a very interesting article that was written by Bob Zubrin discussing the future of planetary science and NASA. And Gina, can you please explain to us a little bit about what he discussed? 
Well, the Office of Management and Budget is just looking over NASA's budget and looking to make further reductions. I think every agency is probably feeling the squeeze. So without touching human spaceflight, obviously the next most expensive um, expenditure NASA has is planetary science exploration. And that would include anything from uh, the Mars Science Laboratory that's about to launch to our Voyager spacecrafts, which have left our solar system and heading into deep space and anything literally in between. Even the Cassini spacecraft, which is in orbit around Saturn, is up for grabs as a financial review is about to take place of all of these probes, what we're gaining from them, and how much is it costing us to run them? I mean, where are we getting value? Where's the bang for the buck? And, you know, it's it, it's ringing serious alarm bells for me that it's, if, you know, if Voyager is truly in play to be canceled, I mean, obviously we're not getting a lot of data from what's happening out there, but there's Voyager 1 and 2. Now, that would be a tremendous loss to my generation. When is the next time we're going to be able to get a probe that far out? Certainly not in, you know, my lifetime that something would be that far out there and useful and working still. Who knows what it could encounter or what it could pick up. So, and that's disappointing to hear. But, um, you know, it's understandable what the position the United States is in economically. But, you know, here we are again. Let's just make sure that our science and our technology remains forefront and we push ahead with... uh, Perhaps, you know, letting Congress know just how important this stuff is to America and the development of our youth and education. So I'm not exactly sure it's a, it's not a done deal by any stretch of the imagination, but alarming nonetheless to hear that anything on the t- all of these items on the table are up for grabs. To, to sort of reiterate, you know, what you were talking about, I'm looking at, a, uh, again, a uh, article from Space News dated uh, on the 28th of October. Uh, Jim Green, who is NASA's uh, Planetary Science Division Director, took a little umbrage with Dr. Zubrin's conclusion, basically saying that uh, it's not true that, that, you know, the planetary program is being killed, to quote uh, uh, Jim Green here, but he did say that um, they are looking at, you know, not everything's up on the table. Basically, the future of Cassini's on the table, at least eight other ongoing science missions, including the Mars rovers and a Venus orbiter, is going to be placed under a microscope, according to the article. Um, and this is going to be looked at uh, next March. The panel is to uh, go ahead and re- make a review and hand in their recommendations right after that. So uh, I don't know if Voyager is on the table. I'm hoping that it isn't because, Gina, I have to agree with you, it would be tragic to lose that capability. It is the only vehicle we have that far out. It is still doing useful science, and it would be, I'll use the term again, it will be absolutely criminal to lose that kind of capability. It was almost like, you know, it's it's incalculable the, the when we turned off all the all sets on on the Apollo uh, on the on the Apollo uh, sites um, we did that prematurely as a as a cost saving measure and we're about ready to shoot ourselves in the foot here again 
I grant you that we we do have an austerity movement here in, in the U.S. We try we're trying to go ahead and hang on to as much as we can, but we also have to cut back. And I realize that nothing is safe at this point because of the budgetary constraints. But you know, let's really take a good, long, hard look at, at what we're doing here and what we're cutting. Because again, the the, the photographs that these these spacecraft have sent back have ignited the imaginations of of, uh, of future scientists and uh, uh, brought back a treasure trove of information that that <laughs> we may not have the ability to get again. Plus, there's some very very ambitious ideas out there that uh you know for for unpiloted exploration i mean shoot i would there's a there's a possibility for a a small submarine to go to to titan or 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 something like that that i would really love to see what's under there um but i don't know if we're going to be able to do something like that now because of because again of the money crunch so i guess we we've got to decide as a country what we really want to do and what we really want to spend our money on I've got something to pitch in. I just went to the voyager.jpl.nasa.gov page, and it says right there in plain view, it says, did you know that a total of 11,000 work years, that's not 11,000 man hours, that's 11,000 work years, was devoted to the Voyager product through the Neptune encounter. And it says that that is equivalent to one-third the amount of effort estimated to complete the Great Pyramid at Giza to King Cheops. So wow. what is it worth? What is it worth? What does it cost? You know, Voyager is out uh, and, and given us information about the, uh, the heliosphere, the heliopause, the area where the solar wind meets the, the interstellar flow of particles from, from the rest of space and determine that it's different than what they thought. And the, the, the good news, too, out of this whole thing, it looks like the OSIRIS-REx asteroid sample return mission, which is slated to launch uh, in 2016, is still active, and they're still going to go ahead and, and do that. According to the article here I'm looking at, um, it's the 12th mission in the Discovery Program, and uh, it's projected to cost about $800 million currently, but... It's, it looks like it's, it's going to go unscathed. So that's, that's, if there's any good news in this, that's, that's it. But again, we, uh, the Europeans have a Mars sample return mission in mind, and we were going to go ahead and partner with them. Um, but we've kind of sort of told them, you know, we might not be able to go ahead and fulfill all of our, you know, financial obligations to this particular program, and now they want to bring the Russians in as a full partner. So again, this is saying, well, all right, maybe we, maybe we are leaving, you know, maybe we're, we are leaving the stage as as the leader in space science if we can't go ahead and and you know kind of be there for for another partner to help them out in another mission and to share in the information and the return of that mission. It's kind of gloomy. Um, I'm hoping that we do decide that this is important but again it's it's up to the politicos at this point i think it's sad the fact that we even have to bring this into question i mean these are some of the greatest planetary science missions that have ever occurred these are bringing back such amazing data that we never could have imagined before i mean we're talking about the outer edges of the solar system rovers on the surface of mars we're talking about 
orbiters around Venus and Saturn. And, and the fact that we even need to bring into question the value of the science that we're getting versus money just goes to show in what kind of a state our mindset is in. And I understand it's a tough economy. And I know that money is tight, and I know that most people believe money could be spent elsewhere. But the science that we're getting, science should in this case prevail rather than, oh, budget, budget this, budget that. I mean, these are missions that have been going on for a long time. The Voyager missions have been going on for over 30 years. And you're just going to shut them down because you don't want the money for it? I just find something so wrong with that. Yeah, I mean, you know, opportunities. It looks like it. It, it also is on is on the table. Cassini's on the table. Uh, a few other missions that are undergoing are on the table. I mean, it's it's just kind of ridiculous to go ahead and turn off capability that's already out there. Um, I mean, we we discussed this a little bit, Gina. Too, you and I kind of talked a little bit about this too when the markups went out. Uh, I guess it was about two three weeks ago. Um, I believe it was. What about 16 billion? They were talking about reducing it to 19, from 19 billion, and I think a lot of that came out of the Planetary Sciences Division, didn't it? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. When well, we were talking about that, so um, I think too, we it it, it it kind of spurs on the question: Do we want to go piloted, or do we want to go, you know, with the planetary research stuff? And again, it's kind of pitting the two against each other. And and it really, in my opinion, it really shouldn't be a question. It should be more of a a cooperative between the two, Uh, not you know, uh, unpiloted versus piloted. Uh, These robots that are going ahead of us are paving the way for us. Event and eventually we'll join them. And eventually we'll be there. It's just right now we just don't we just don't have the capability to follow them just yet. But eventually we will get out there with them. But hey, go ahead and decide what we want to do. Do we want to consider any type of space flight a priority or do we not? And Sawyer, you, you, you hit it right on the head. We've got to we've got to really, really look at the science on this and what the return is. Exactly. It'll be very interesting to see what their review looks at and which of some of our greatest missions will either get a, a lesser budget or no budget. It'll be a fun march, I'll say that much. All right, so continuing along now, we have another story, except this one we're not going into space, but we're going underwater. And this is the NEMO-15 mission. And Mark, if you could tell us a little bit about that, we'd appreciate it. So if it's not in space, would that be under space? <laughs> Ooh, that's ah, a tricky one. You're not the only one with uh, interesting jokes. Now, I was I was looking at at the story with Nemo being readied for use by a NASA group of NASA astronauts and uh, personnel, and the fact that it was about to start up, and unfortunately during hurricane season here in the states, it uh, got threatened just a bit by tropical storms slash hurricanes slash tropical storms slash nothing. I believe it was Rena, and unfortunately it caused the mission to be cut short by a few days. But they did get some six underwater spacewalks where they were doing research that simulated what it would be like to work on an asteroid. And they came up with some really innovative uh, 
concepts to test out to see how the theories of what would work in that environment, how it matched the actual use in a as close as they could simulate to a long-term zero-G environment, namely underwater. And uh, they said they got some good science, some good results. They had one day of research inside the habitat, and unfortunately they did have to cut it short, but it was deemed a success. And Hurricane Rena ended up, I don't know that it really was that much a factor, but that was one of those storms that was not predictable and hardly any fashion for what they thought it was going to do and what it did. It uh, it seemed to lose its path, and I quit paying attention to it, and then all of a sudden it was gone. But So it was Nemo 15. And just a quick shout-out to a uh, young lady that appeared um, on our show who was part of the Nemo 15 support crew, uh, Heather Paul, who was also one of the uh, uh, the EVA suit engineers. So, uh, again, uh, a good work shout-out to, to her. Yeah, kind of just think for a minute. Imagine the email that goes out. Is anyone interested in participating in the following specialties for some research in the Keys? And uh, people that have the the interest for something a little different, a little travel, uh, kind of stretching the bounds of their typical job. That's a big part of what NEMO is all about. Yeah, I can picture getting that email, Mark. You know, let me think about this for a moment. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, part of their crew was Steve Squires from of Cornell University, astronaut Stan Love, Richard Arnold, Mike Gernhart, and they were all veteran spacewalkers. And uh, they, I think, wholeheartedly are part of uh, anything they can do to further the research there. And it says that just for a consolation prize, Nemo 16 is on the books for next year in 2012. So the work will continue. I think we need to take a scuba diving trip now. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I imagine yeah, there might be there might be some takers soon, if not certainly by February. Get my permit now. <laughs> I just pick February as one of those random months when the cold gets really tedious. Even in Florida, believe it or not. Oh, don't remind me of STS one thirty. The weather. The mission, sure. The weather, no. <laughs> <laughs> found out how cold 50 degrees can be didn't you uh especially being from the northeast yes uh, very 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 cold anyway enough complaining about the weather it's florida our first story was about commercial space and we mentioned we would come back to it and we are to our final story which involves spacex's elon musk and possible talks of him ditching the dragon to the international space station because of a format change yeah, the the whole the whole thing with uh, uh, Elon Musk. First off, to to set this up a little bit, um, about two weeks ago there was a a little bit of a shindig out at uh, uh, Washington D.C. Um, the uh, uh, we had five uh, individuals come over there: uh, John Eblon from uh, Boeing, Steve Lindsay, former uh, shuttle astronaut, now uh, with Sierra Nevada. Uh, Elon Musk from uh, from SpaceX, Charlie Precourt, another uh, former astronaut uh, who is now with APK, um, and uh, George Sowers uh, with United Launch Alliance. Um, they were all uh, uh, brought over to Congress to kind of talk about what the progress is on their specific programs. And um, 
real real quick uh there was uh, some in congress saying that uh uh well are we creating you know uh, you guys are we putting you know commercial space into a, a niche you know that is sort of too big to fail you know i e the you know the financial crisis that we had here um or you know why should uh, the public go ahead and subsidize vehicles that the public will have to go uh, turn around and buy. That's another another argument against the whole thing. Um, right now, though, it's the only game in town, so you know it, it's it's going to have to have to proceed as uh, as it is now. But <clears throat> one of the things that came up during the the, the event was uh, Elon Musk basically said that uh, if things keep on going the way they're going with um, the commercial contracts and NASA doesn't change the terms of those contracts uh, to build uh, to build you know a spacecraft to go to the ISS that uh, SpaceX just might decide um, you know we're going to bow out of the uh, the piloted aspect of this thing. Um, the, uh, the complaint is that the current version of the contract gives NASA, uh, sort of carte blanche to, to exert a little bit more control over the, over the, the hardware, over the, over the design, overall design of the spacecraft, um, then a lot of people within the industry are, are kind of sort of, well, kind of comfortable with, uh, and, uh, uh, to go ahead and, and to quote the article here that I'm looking at from Popular Mechanics, Elon Musk is saying some of the contract to him looked like it was cut and pasted from Constellation. So he is just not all that happy with this. And he's not the only one to bring bring this up. Um, I believe... Uh, uh, ATK has also had similar similar concerns um, and uh, to so NASA may have to go ahead and rethink how they're 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 approaching this I realize that they're trying to play conservative that they want to have some say into how these vehicles are, are put together they've got about 50 years worth of experience to go ahead and uh, say you know hey we've been we've been doing this for for this particular period of time and uh, you know I think we know what the heck we're doing but I think these guys also are are kind of taking a page out of out of NASA's book. They've looked at those those books and said, "Hey, we know that, you know, kind of back off and let us do our job." And uh, uh, you know, I I can't believe I'm sitting here defending them, but you know, I I'm sort of defending the companies, basically saying, you know, and especially with with, with a company like Boeing and, and ATK, these guys have been getting the job done for you for for quite some time. Sierra Nevada has also been around the block block a few times. Uh, SpaceX is a relatively new company, um, so maybe you know you could go ahead and and, and kind of say something about that. But by the same token, too, you've got got some good former, you know, heavyweights, NASA heavyweights in, in SpaceX right now, so that are bringing all of that, that type of knowledge over and, and trying to go ahead and, and, and work that, bake that type of knowledge into the spacecraft. So, you know, it, it, this is just going to be bumping aheads until uh, until they, they figure out how, how, how it's going to work. But is Elon Musk really going to pull out of this thing? The answer is no. I mean, there, there's too much money involved, and he's 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 in there for the long haul. Trust me.
I think it's a it's a veiled you know I think it's a veiled threat. Kind of reminds me as a uh, maybe a shot across the bow, as a comparison of how the uh, commercial airline industry complains to the FAA about regulations that the FAA imposes that affect the airline's bottom line, affect their profitability. Of course, the object is to do business as inexpensively as you can to maximize your profits. And if there's requirements that are either here and there or continually sent your way that you're having to comply to, that can be taken as being over uh, over enthusiastic regulation by the government. And yet, it's, it's the beginning of an industry. So if we do everything right, there'll probably be still many that will say that we're doing half of it wrong. I still kind of remember uh, a comment, Mark, that you made. Uh, this was a few shows back where um, one of the uh, the biggest oxymorons in the world, you know, you walk in into a room and say, hello, I'm here, I'm, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. <laughs> I think this might be a case of that. Yeah, the flip, kind of, flip side of the coin is, and we're glad you're here. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Alrighty then. So with that, that brings our spooktacular episode to a close. You want to hear something even spookier? This was our 99th show. You're kidding. <laughs> I lost track. This was show 99, which means who knows what ghoulish things will occur next week. Ghoulish oh boy, or ghoulish. Wow. So, for the 99th time, I'd like to thank everybody for joining us. Thank you for joining us, even through your tough circumstance, Gene McCulka. Uh, always an honor to be here, Sawyer. I, I, enjoy, I enjoy the time I have with you guys, seriously. And uh, I'll, I'll try to keep warm somehow. Yeah, we hope you get your power back soon. Yeah, thanks. I hope I get my house back soon. <laughs> Thank you as well, Mark Ratterman. Good to be here as always, and interesting to hear the varied topics and the things that I've missed, oftentimes, that we get to talk about. And thank you as well, Gina Hurley. Uh, You're very welcome, Sawyer. And once again, we'd like to thank you for joining us, and as always, have a great day, night, evening, wherever it may be, where you are. (laughs) 